off. Well, I was sitting in an elder meeting and I got a, and, and Pastor Matt got a phone call and it was, hey, can you pray? Can you pray? Because right now we're at lunch with some folks and um, Matt Kerr is practicing Matthew 5-2 with people from work. He's opening his mouth. This guy right here. And see, that's, that's what it looks like. He didn't know I was going to call him out. Sorry about that. If you're a little, he probably wouldn't have liked that. But so we, as elders, we prayed. And we prayed, Lord, would you find, give him favor? Paul said, pray for me that when I open my mouth to proclaim the gospel, that it could be understood rightly. And so they can go forth and accomplish that which it's intended to go forth and doing. So remember, when you have those opportunities, um, do as Jesus, what would Jesus do? He would open his mouth and he would step into that gap and he would speak about the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. Let's do that. So last week we noticed beginning in verse 3 where Jesus began this. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it seems that Jesus puts this beatitude first, uh, this attitude of this poorness in spirit, this humility of spirit, this brokenness of spirit as the foundation of all these other graces, as the foundation for these other beatitudes, this a fundamental aspect of genuine repentance without which none of the others are possible. If there's not a poorness of spirit, a recognition of a complete undoneness without the help of God, how are any of the others even going to be a possibility unless we're just exercising them really hard in our flesh, trying to accomplish things in our flesh because we think wrongly that if we're really good people that we can earn God's favor. Well, the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount is going to dislodge such thinking very violently as we get more into the Sermon on the Mount, that no one is capable and no one is good enough to do that. Pride has no part in Christ's kingdom, and until a person willingly surrenders their pride, they cannot, it says, enter the kingdom of heaven. For the kingdom of heaven is for those who are poor in spirit. And such they are blessed, they are happy, they understand that God did something in them that they could not have done themselves. John MacArthur said, until a soul is humbled, until the inner person is poor in spirit, Christ can never become dear because he is obscured by self. Until one knows how helpless, worthless, and sinful he is in himself, He can never see how mighty, worthy, and glorious Christ is in himself. Until one sees how doomed he is, he cannot see what a redeemer the Lord is. Until one sees his own spiritual poverty, he cannot see God's riches as freely offered him in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good? So how does one evidence having truly become poor in spirit? How does one truly evidence having become poor in spirit? The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. It's through the recognition of the Lordship of Jesus Christ over one's life. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. It's a surrendering of all that you are unto all that he is. He is the king from heaven. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when we do that, we learn to pray 
like David prayed in Psalm 51.10. This becomes a part of our, probably often, a part of our daily crying out to God, creating, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Because like sheep, we're prone to wander. We can stray very quickly and go our own way. And so we say, Lord, will you continually on a daily basis create and renew a clean heart within me that recognizes I need to submit myself to the Lordship of Jesus, trust in his word with my life and for my life in all things, believing that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And in him is life eternal and abundant life in the here and now, right? This isn't just for sometime later, pie in the sky, some eternal kingdom when we have all these glorified bodies. No, abundant life in the here and now as a result of following King Jesus. And when we do, the good news is that all who come to King Jesus in this condition of poor in spirit will, I'll probably go this way, will, theirs is, the kingdom of heaven. That eternal kingdom that Jesus will establish. It's ours. Amen? Now in verse 4, we pick up this morning where we left off last week. And it seems that we see the other side of the same coin, if you will, when we get to verse 4. Notice what it says. It says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, the word for blessed, as we mentioned last week, is a very, it's very key, obviously, in all of these, in the Beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. So we looked last week at this Greek word for blessedness, and it pertains to being happy with the implication of enjoying favorable circumstances. And as children of God, we are the most, and have the most favorable circumstances of all human beings who have ever existed on planet Earth by means of imputation of Christ's righteousness, by means of being the inheritors of all the rich promises of God in Christ Jesus. They are ours. We have the most favorable circumstances of all people who have ever lived. Even if in our existence on this earth, we know that, that this kind of favorable condition and this kind of blessedness, this kind of happiness for those who mourn, for those who are gentle, for those who are merciful, for those who are pure in heart, has nothing to do with the temporal circumstances that we are currently experiencing in this life. I mean, all we have to do is read the New Testament epistles and discover very clearly that their lives were chalked full of suffering but yet their joy was increasing and abounding all the more as they continued to believe in that coming kingdom that Christ was coming to establish. And so we have to be convinced as believers, it's so important that we understand this and we think from and thus live according to a biblical Christian worldview. That favorable circumstances aren't a reference to times of ease or times of plenty. Unless, of course, we're talking about the flourishing of the soul, times of blessing, times of refreshment that come from the Lord on a daily basis. So the inner man is growing from one level of glory to another level of glory in Christ Jesus with each passing day, though the outer man is decaying. <laughs> Are you looking in the mirror? Man, I'm looking at some of you and you're like, yeah, the outer man is decaying. But the inner man, day by day, growing in strength and confidence, and hope. 
because of Christ. This is the way Christians are to think and thus to live. Remember, we looked at this last week. A brother of humble circumstances. Your circumstances today, perhaps. I know some of you a little more, a little more intimately than others, and I know some of your circumstances aren't the best. And they haven't been for a really, really long time. So you would fall into a category of a brother or a sister who has been enduring humble circumstances as these brothers did 2,000 years ago, to whom James was writing, they were dispersed abroad. In other words, they, because of their newfound faith in Jesus, they were, their, their lives were literally blown up. They were, they were dispersed. They were sent away from their homes. They lost their homes. They lost all their, their place in the society, which was everything for these Jewish brothers and sisters. And he says, and he has the audacity to say to these brothers of humble circumstances that they are to glory in something that is far more significant and important than anything temporal on this earth. And that is their high position that they now possess as a result of knowing Jesus Christ personally. What high position? Well, the king came and he's going to establish his kingdom. And when you repent, you get entrance into that kingdom. And that kingdom endures forever and ever and ever and ever. You become a subject of the king of heaven forever. So this little temporal suffering at the hands of the wealthy landowners and they're suppressing you and some of you are even dying as a result of this. By means of comparison, it's not to minimize the suffering. The suffering is real, but persevere all the way to the end in faith because what you're going to inherit by comparison, this is nothing in comparison. Paul says, if you're a slave and you can find a way to, to remedy that and free yourself, he says, rather do that. But if you can't, and you must sustain and abstain underneath such difficult circumstances, he says, do so in such a way that brings honor to Christ and to God in times of suffering. And so we must be those who remember that that blessedness, this blessed, this happiness, blessed are those who mourn. And, and I'm going to say mourn rightly. I use that word rightly. Happy can be those who mourn rightly. And he says, because they shall be comforted. There's going to be some comfort that's going to come to those who know how to suffer and who are suffering rightly. And that means that there's a wrong way to mourn. There's a way to mourn that's not rightly, and there's a way to mourn that is rightly. You know, John, the apostle over here in 1 John chapter 2, he gave us a, a, a right pithy little word whenever he says that we need, as believers, we need not, do not love the world. When we suffer as a result of pursuing things in the world because we have a love for them, and then difficult circumstances befall us and we're just mourning and grieving over those things because... That didn't work out in my favor, and this didn't work out in my favor, and that didn't go my way, and that deal fell through, and this thing... Ha we have to, I think, kind of slow down and say, what kingdom are we, really trying to <clears throat> are we really trying to build here? And we have to understand that we live under the providential hand of God in all things that we do. And so the need to think clearly about what we possess in Christ Jesus is utterly important. Can you, can you agree with that one? It's utterly important that we learn to and train ourselves to think biblically. 
I thought he was bringing me a cup of water right there. No, I, I, I got this one right here. I kind of <clears throat> did a little, co- and then here comes Matt with water. I thought, man, he's going to, no. We have to learn and to think, and this is so crucial. We, this is where we live. Because if we fall in love with the world, he says right here, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Priorities wrong. What, uh, what are you serving? Who are you serving? Are you serving self, trying to get ahead as a, as a personal little kingdom? Are you living as a, as a steward of everything, or are you trying to live as an owner of all things? These kind of distinctions, though seemingly finely worded, they make a huge impact in the way we think about temporal worldly circumstances. Because everything that's in this world, the lust of flesh, the pride of the lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. Well, just right here, putting boastful and pride together kind of knocks out the whole poor in spirit concept. This isn't from the Father. So as a believer, if you find yourself being prone to being swayed into thinking these kinds of ways, remember there's an adversary who's the deceiver and he's trying to deceive you and lure you away from living for that kingdom that's coming, for lure you away from living for Christ. And perhaps he's even shouting, this is a warning here to say, are you truly his? Check your spiritual pulse to make sure you truly belong to Christ, to make certain that the, the heart cry, the, the desire of your heart is truly a love for Christ. Because the world's passing away, friends. And also all those lusts, all these things that we just sometimes think we can't live without. It's fleeting. It's temporal. Enjoy them while you can. Enjoy Rocky Road while you can. If you still can. But they're just temporal pleasures that are passing away. But notice how he ends this section. But the one who does the will of God lives for. Ever. So again, kind of like what James was saying, you see that a person justified by what they do. John, the one who does the will of the, of the Father, the one who does the will of God, abides forever. It's important that we understand rightly that our blessedness, like blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the poor in spirit, that that happy condition, that, that, that permanent sense of contentedness of heart that we possess has absolutely everything. Remember, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That it's all about Christ. All of it. Our contentedness is all about Christ. In everything else in this world, we live with an open hand before the Father. And he can, he can give and he can take away. And we can still say, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives, he takes away, but we can still say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Because our contentedness, that, that happiness has nothing to do with, these are temporal things. We, we, thank you, we love these, but you take them away. You're still the great God of heaven. But I have a contentedness of heart and soul that can never be taken away, ever. He gives that freely, and he never takes it away. And that's an eternal abiding relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, with the only true and living God forever and ever. And so we're in the process of working that out. And so... Those who mourn are to be happy people. Those who mourn correctly are to be happy people because they're going to be comforted. They're going to be comforted. So comforted comes from this Greek word right here, parakaleo, 
to cause someone to be encouraged or consoled. Encouraged or consoled. So when we see rightly happy are those who mourn correctly, I'm adding correctly, we're going to get there in just a second, for they shall be comforted. I think it's important to understand that this idea of comforting here, this this idea of they shall be comforted, has the idea of an encouragement. To call someone to be encouraged. When you bring comfort to somebody and you speak comfort to them, what are you in essence doing? You're speaking hope into the context of a difficult circumstance. It's a form of encouragement that can also be referred to as a consolation or as translated in this case, comfort or comforted. And that can happen either by verbal means or by nonverbal means. Okay? We see this in 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Sorrow according to the will of God. So when I was talking about mourning rightly, there is a way to mourn and there's a way not to mourn. And those who mourn rightly, those are the ones that are truly happy, contented in Christ Jesus because they know that they're going to be comforted. There's going to be a consolation. They know that there's going to be encouragement in Christ Jesus. I don't have my Philippians 2 passage in here. That was the one I was going for, Philippians 2. Just listen. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and that word encouragement right there is the same Greek word, parakaleo, that's translated comforted in Matthew 5, 4. In the Philippians passage, there, it's an encouragement. Since there is, is encouragement in Christ, we could say since there is consolation in Christ or since there is comfort in Christ, be of the same spirit, make my joy complete, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Again, we need to rightly understand that this comfort idea, these, those who mourn rightly receive a form of encouragement or comfort and and hope as expressed as a result of knowing that our relationship in Jesus Christ is the foundation of everything that we do. And so when we comfort someone, we are in essence giving them hope. When we encourage someone, we're bringing them consolation, we're giving them hope. And this is why I keep saying that we need to mourn rightly. They will comfort those who mourn rightly will be comforted. They shall be given hope through the blessed hope of the Lord Jesus himself when he establishes that kingdom. These are the blessed ones. So again, it leads me to think back and to now answer the question, what does it mean to mourn rightly? What does it look like or what does it mean to mourn rightly? Is this comfort and hope and exhortation for those who mourn? over the lack of opportunity to better themselves financially or socially or physically? Is it uh, for parents who struggle with infertility? Is it for the single desiring a life partner or whose political party didn't perform as expected with some big red wave at the polls and thus they continue to see perhaps their country ebbing in in the ways of Sodom and Gomorrah? Or on a more 
even somber note is this the morning of those who have lost loved ones who feel a perpetual sense of loss. I mean, if you think about it, living in a fallen, sin-cursed world provides an endless supply of legitimate reasons for which and over which genuine mourning could and should take place. Legitimate sorrows that are common to all mankind and for which mourning is appropriate. And to express sorrow over them or even to shed tears over them is a normal function of what it means to be people living in a fallen, sin-marred world. Remember what Jesus did when Lazarus died? He wept. But at the end of the day, every one of these things mentioned, and I could have made a longer list, can be mourned by the saved and the unsaved alike. And they are. But both aren't equally blessed of God. So you see, there is a mourning. It's a very unique mourning that is experienced by people, regardless of race, color, creed, who have truly dealt with the sorrow of soul and their sin before the only true and living God. These might be those who we would refer to as being poor in spirit. And I believe it's this specific kind of mourning that Jesus is referencing here in this context. Jesus has in mind a godly mourning, a godly sorrow that cries from the heart of those who truly desire to belong to him. They see him for who he truly is. And when they evaluate themselves in light of who he truly claims to be, there's a recognition of a poorness of spirit and a mourning of soul. And I think that one of the reasons perhaps there is such a great mourning of soul is because there is a great place of hopelessness that fills the heart of a person when they recognize that they have sinned before the only true and living holy God, and there's not a thing that they can do to make it right. Nothing. That they're completely devoid of their own capacities to make it right. And thus they stand in need of what? A Savior. What's the Sermon on the Mount going to kind of be all about? You need a Savior. You need a Savior. You cannot make this on your own. And those who are poor in spirit and those who mourn rightly over the poor, wretched condition of their spiritually inept souls who recognize I have absolutely nothing to bring to the cross, why would he have ever loved me? I sinned freely and willfully against him. I perhaps even cursed his name from time to time. Why would he have chosen to save me? There's a mourning of soul that Jesus can only supply comfort to, a sense of hope in, a sense of consolation about. And that is so when we have our spiritually blind eyes open and we recognize that we come to him with empty hands and by faith and that that can never be lost and we've been freely given something, we don't continue to live 
as mournful, wretched souls who don't understand that we stand in grace and have been recipients of mercy. We don't continue to to mope around on planet Earth, um, kind of whipping ourselves and kind of falsely establishing perhaps piety and means of humility so that others might think that we're so humble as Jesus was humble. We now stand in Christ. We still recognize the mourning soul that we had. Can you remember? October 12th, 1988. I still remember as if it was yesterday. And I'm still blown away by the mercy of God that found me sitting in a garage apartment, in a a broken-down garage apartment, all by myself, being reminded that I was just another brick in the wall, that life was completely meaningless. And through all that darkness came a, a beam of light. And I said right there on that couch on that day on October 12th, I believe that you are the only true God of heaven and earth. And all of a sudden... Everything changed. All of a sudden, there was consolation. I was comforted. There was a new hope that I had never truly even had experienced before. Where did it come from? It came from mercy and grace from God the Father. And sitting in that room on that day, I repented of my sin. And I remember saying, I I have nothing but God. However you want to use my life, use it. I've made a complete wreck of it. However you want to use my life, it's yours to use. I had no idea that I would be standing before his church, opening the words of God and teaching the words of life. I'd been the last person to have ever thought that that's how God was going to choose to use my life. All of mercy, all of grace, a comfort, a hope. And that's what it says. Notice. Wait, notice, I went the wrong way. There's a contented happiness and blessedness of those who rightly mourn. These are the ones that will be comforted. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, can you still feel that sense of consolation and hope and comfort that you received when you gave your life to the Lord Jesus Christ whenever it was for you? Do you remember that? Never forget it. Live in light of that. Continue to be the beggar that comes to him with empty hands. Never start trying to use these hands of yours then to start building kingdoms of your own. If he puts great things in them, thank you, Jesus. If he takes them away, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's all about Christ. It's all about his coming kingdom. He's coming again, and people need the Lord. And this is why Matthew 5, 2 should become like a church's clarion cry to evangelism. Jesus opened his mouth, and so must we. Because he's going to teach us to become fishers of men. That's what we need to do. Fish for men, open our mouth, and demonstrate a life. What does repentance look like? A life of one who understands what it means to feel poor in spirit and who mourned because they were completely absent of everything apart from Jesus. And then you understand the gospel and the good news, and you go tell others all about it. And notice how the, and notice this transition. This transition, what? From... Poor in spirit, mourning, these people are blessed, so, and, and blessed also are the gentle. And, and that may seem like a, a, a unique transition, but I think it's a very subtle transition and a very purpose transition that Matthew moves to next in verse 5, this idea of gentleness. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Now think about that. 
what did John come preaching? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did Jesus come preaching and teaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And from the Old Testament perspective, and even into the New, we know that Jesus is going to establish a kingdom, an earthly kingdom, for they shall inherit the earth. The gentle are blessed, poor in spirit, mourning rightly over our sin, crying out only to God. And in doing so, one of the aspects of genuine repentance in our life is that we become gentle people. Gentle is from a Greek word that pertains to being gentle. And mild. Some translations like to use the word meekness, right? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In this context here, in relation to God here, the child of God is here seen now as being gentle or mild or meek as a result of humbly standing before God in grace alone with empty hands recognizing they have nothing to bring. Their pride is broken and they are humbled before God. And when you're humbled before God, it makes you a very gentle, meek, mild person. You might even say that might equate to like submissive of being poor in spirit and rightly mourning over one's sin against holy God, which leads to repenting, uh, leaves us in this new relationship with God, one in which we now have the capacity of being gentle as one who is genuinely poor in spirit, submissive to God now, doing the will of God from the heart. I want to show you just a few passages. What time I got here? Oh, it's 11.12. I got plenty of time. Let me show you just a few passages here where this idea of Jesus' teaching of gentleness made it, it just made its way through the New Testament epistles in a very pervasive way. And just pick up on this. And don't forget, blessed are those who are gentle. They're going to be those who are in the inheritors of the earth, this kingdom that Jesus is going to establish. It's going to start off as a small mountain. Daniel was given revelation in Daniel chapter 2 through Nebuchadnezzar's dream, is going to start off as a small mountain that's going to overtake the entire world. God's people will be the inheritors of the earth. Jesus will be ruling with the rod of iron. Notice how this gentleness makes its way through the New Testament. In Galatians 6.1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Is there room for haughtiness when we're living in Christian community with each other and we see a brother or sister sinning? Absolutely not. Gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. Ephesians 4, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner, to live in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. Patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Gentleness is directly related to our capacity to do that. Colossians 3, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, and here it is again, it's always making the list. Gentleness. Patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, 
Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Gentleness. 1 Timothy 6, 11, Paul to Pastor Timothy, flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Timothy, these are things you are to pursue because what poor in spirit and those who truly have mourned rightly recognize is that God has changed their lives. These are the contours of genuine repentance and the life of those who are following Jesus, gentleness. 2 Timothy 2, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So when you see sinners sinning, they're held captive to do the will of him who's the father of lies. And so it's with gentleness that we correct. Sometimes believers can come across a little bit harshly and stern and we need to remember that those who remember where the, the, the pit from which they were rescued, it brings with it gentleness. This is what repentance looks like in the life of the believer. It's gentle. James says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, in the gentleness of wisdom. We just continue to see the the impact of this idea of gentleness that Jesus talks about, how it's one of the contours, the fruits of the Spirit. It's, um, it's what becomes identifiable, easily identifiable within the life of those who know Christ. Peter said, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense. Make a defense. Well, aren't we supposed to be just gentle, mild, meek little people, just always blown over like a, a reed in the wind? No, there's times when we make a defense to everyone who asks to give you an account for the hope that is in you. Yet, how do we do it? With gentleness and reverence. Gentleness, again, seems to be that which has impacted uh, the writing of Scripture throughout the entirety of the New Testament. And in each and every one of these examples that we've looked at here this morning, um, these are absolute facts that gentleness is to be part of our new life in Christ. So how are you doing, brothers and sisters, in exuding the gentleness of your spirit and wisdom as you're engaging your family, your children, your co-workers, and others, as is befitting those who know Christ? Now, it needs to be stated that in each one of these examples just given, that not one of these indicate to any degree, to any degree, a sense of cowardness, a sense of emotional flabbiness, a lack of conviction, a weakness of spirit, a timidity. God's not given us a spirit of timidity, but what? Power and love and a sound mind. But can we do that in a spirit of gentleness? Well, absolutely we can. You know, when you think about the taming of a horse, there's this powerful 
beautiful creature that's got more muscle on it than than it's imaginable. It's as strong. It's as strong as a horse. <laughs> They're just beautiful. And when there's not a bit in that horse's mouth, they're wild and free. But whenever those beautiful, strong animals are tamed and there's the bit in the mouth, all that does, have they lost any of their strength? Have they lost any of that great majesty and might? No, but now they're what? They're under control. This is why I think that gentleness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. We're under control. Another one is called self-control, but we're under the control. We have the bit of the Holy Spirit in our souls now. And so we're not, we, don't, we don't lash out like the, the thrusting of a sword and then just kind of play it off as though that's, that's kind of like my personality. You, remember, you, you submitted your personality to the lordship of Jesus Christ and you said, you're Lord, I'm not. Your way, not my way. It's your kingdom I'm wanting to get into. You didn't ask to get into my kingdom. And so since you're saying that gentleness is a part of the happiness that comes with those who are blessed, that's the blessed are those who are gentle. They're going to be those who are the inheritors of, the, of, the, of this world. They're going to be inheriting into this kingdom that God's going to establish. I need to do what? I need to be purposefully thinking of how can I conform my life into the image of Jesus, which means I need to look more gentle and less sword-thrusting-like in my engagement with this world. And perhaps through that winsomeness of wisdom, God will use my testimony to save others. I didn't say back down. I didn't say get cowardice. I didn't say crawl up like a feeble, you know, I don't know. I just don't. No, have confidence and boldness. Why? Well, because you're poor in spirit and you've mourned rightly and you know that you stand completely in mercy and grace. You stand in the strength of Christ Himself in gentleness. Isn't that good? See, those are some of the contours of what repentance looks like in the life of a believer. So when you say, oh, I repented, but then you kind of look in the mirror and you say, but I don't look any more like the things that Jesus is talking about. I don't really look like one who understands that I need to be poor in spirit. I don't look like one who understands that I've truly mourned before God because of the wretched condition of my soul. I'm not looking any more gentle today as a result of saying that I've, I've been walking with Jesus. When I don't see the things that the Word of God claims is going to have its impact in my living in my life i have need to check my spiritual pulse i don't feel it there let me see okay yeah there is a little life right there but sure it's not very strong and so what do i need what does the word of god say that we need the word of god says you need biblical community you need brothers and sisters in your life to encourage you in your progression of christ likeness it's that simple and so in this sermon, this great sermon, and in these Beatitudes, we're getting a good look of what, it needs, what we need to be looking like as those who walk according to his ways. Remember this psalm? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. Genuine repentance changes your life. You go from doing these things to not doing these things. But instead, what we delight in now is the Word of God, the law of the Lord. And in His law, in the Word of God, we, we meditate on it. In the day, in the night, we meditate on it. Why? Because we're poor in spirit. We know that we, we once thought we were smart enough to make our life work apart from God and Christ, but we repented of that, and we said, I can't do that. And 
I now need his word and his ways to be the lamp to my feet, the light to my path. And so we delight, we meditate in that in the day and in the night. And then he makes us like something. People's lives firmly planted by streams of water. And in what we do, we prosper. The prosperity of our soul. And he causes our ways to prosper that way. It really isn't overly complex or complicated. It's just what the Word of God teaches. And brothers and sisters, if you desire to be an inheritor of the earth, desire to be those who reign with Christ in His kingdom that He's going to establish, you need to make certain that you are looking more gentle like your Savior. And when you are and you recognize this in yourself, man, you are the most blessed, happy human being that's ever existed on planet earth because God did something in you that you couldn't do for yourself. He showed you the poorness of your spirit and you mourned over it greatly. And he's now conforming you more into the image of Jesus. Gentleness seems to be the beginning place where where Jesus himself takes us. Amen? Do you want to know more of Christ? See, one of the things is there there also has to be a a want, like from the heart, a willing. Do Do you really want to be with God's people forever in this eternal kingdom? Do you find a joy there? See, these are the questions that we ask when we start evaluating the conditions of our hearts. And to the degree that we're not finding it there, we just might need to continue as believers, a daily cleansing, a daily repentance. Lord, forgive me for this. Forgive me for making these things idols in my life. Help me to overcome this. Help me to overcome that. Grab a brother. Grab a sister. Get somebody in your life that can help you in your journey and help you in your walk. Amen.